Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by a renowned artist, Kehinde Wiley. Through painting, sculpture, and video, Wiley's portraits are often triumphant celebrations of the black and brown people he's met throughout the world. In a recent New Yorker profile, writer Julian Lucas explains that this all began back in the early 2000s, when Wiley, fresh out of college, became known for transfiguring hip-hop style into the idiom of the old masters. Since then, the L.A.-born painter, who grew up in South Central, has become something of a global institution. He's held solo exhibitions throughout the United States and internationally, and his works are included in the collections of over 50 public institutions. In 2018, Wiley became the first African-American artist to paint an official U.S. presidential portrait for the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. Former President Barack Obama selected Wiley for this honor. The next year, in 2019, Wiley founded Black Rock Senegal, a multidisciplinary artist-in-residence program that invites creators to live and work in Dakar, which is also where Wiley splits his time between Beijing and New York. But most recently, Kehinde found himself in the city of Los Angeles, where his new exhibition titled Colorful Realm has just opened at the Roberts Projects. It's there at the gallery that Wiley and I sat down to talk. We discussed the Japanese influence on his latest paintings, the profound impact of artist Carrie James Marshall, Kehinde's earliest work at the Studio Museum in Harlem, painting the former president, and a whole lot more. At a couple points in this conversation, we make specific reference to paintings. If you'd like to see the works being described, we've created a virtual exhibit on our website at talkeasypod.com. We've also included that link in the description of this episode. Now, you may also notice a slight echo throughout this episode. This was taped under pretty unusual circumstances inside the gallery itself as staff worked at a breakneck speed to get the exhibition ready. And so with all that, I want to thank everyone at the Roberts Projects for hosting us and for making this special episode possible. And to Kehinde Wiley for sitting with me just a few hours before his big opening night. I hope you enjoy Kehinde Wiley, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. How are you feeling? Pretty nervous. I mean, this is a big deal exhibition for me. Let's set the stage properly. We're talking on the day of the premiere of your new exhibition called Colorful Realm. It's, of course, the inaugural show at the Roberts Project's new gallery here in Los Angeles. But I'm curious, as we sit in an office 20, 30 feet away from these new pieces, what's your state of mind before an opening night? 
Do you go through like the stages of, of grief or anxiety? What, what happens? To be honest with you, all the hard work is done. At this point, it is making sure that the lighting is great, making sure that the paintings talk to each other really well in the room. You know, so much about painting is about how you craft an image and how color and composition come together. But also there's something about the way that images speak to each other within a room. How the simple act of having a head turned to the left or to the right is the art of composing painting within space. And so, again, we're a little bit nervous about the social aspect of meeting people and, <laughs> and how the, the work is going to be received. But really, it's it just comes down to this obsession with mastery, this obsession with the presentation of these beautiful people in, in, in their best light possible. The social aspect, why is that nerve-wracking? Well, because... At its best, work is something that I consider to be done behind closed doors. You know, I'm taking colored paste and hairy sticks and coaxing it into form, and I'm trying to cover up my mistakes and try to have this illusion of perfection. And that, when it's done well, is something that you see, uh, that you don't see. You don't see the, the trace. You don't see the hand. You see impossible perfection. When people come tonight and you're making the rounds and, and shaking hands, and people are looking at these pieces for the first time. When you see them, can you see only what's wrong with them? No, I know when I'm, when I'm good, when I'm hitting the right <laughs> notes, right? I wish that I could oftentimes predictably repeat that, but that's the hard work. That's the sort of trying to bottle lightning moment. And I think that's what we're always in search of. I think Hollywood's been trying to do that for 100 years. <laughs> exactly. When it comes to the series itself, the, the model scene in these paintings come from New York, West Africa, Europe, and appear in what you call a divine void. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, within Western easel painting, there's this history of creating divine space, the space of self-actualization, the space where everyone looks really good. And it usually has religious light. It usually has like this, this light that penetrates the body. It's very phallic. It's very white. It's very associated with this state of grace that Western European easel painting is obsessed with. You look at Tiepolo's ceiling frescoes, you look at Michelangelo, you look at all of those amazing Western European paintings, and they're about heroicism, stoicism, about people holding these poses in which they just feel like gods. And I was breastfed on this vocabulary. I was breastfed on going to museums and wanting to be able to copy that language, to be able to, to get it right. And when it became my turn to, to play, I wanted the protagonist of that story to look like me. I wanted to be able to occupy that field of power. Portraiture, I suppose, is a, trying to approximate the temperature of someone, the way that they dress, the way that they hold themselves when they're trying to be fancy, the mm -hmm. way that they see themselves as elevated. And that, you know, I encourage my models to go through art history books and to look at the poses that old aristocrats and nobility were, were holding in the original paintings. And then they find and land upon their favorite poses. I mean, oftentimes you'll see a lot of swashbuckling and swords and a lot of mounting of horses and all of this. And, and, and there's a reason for that. There's, it's not me. It's not the 21st century. This stuff is coming out of the 17th and 16th centuries mm -hmm. in which people are dominating the picture plane. Painting, I guess, in this sense is about joy and it's about uh, self-presentation, but it's also about domination. Mm -hmm. And so that explains the scale of those massive history paintings that you'll see in the Louvre. For example, you'll see the Davids that are designed in a way to kind of consume you as a viewer. 
these paintings are doing less consuming and more acting as a kind of repository, mm. a place in which we can kind of come around a collective yes and say that these people deserve to be recognized and seen. And perhaps it seems a bit silly because we're using this antique language of grace, but perhaps by using such an antiquated language, we can arrive at something a little bit more true. But the ability of your work to have a foot both in the past and, and one in the present, it speaks to, I think, your general unique ability to multitask certain conceptual concerns within your work, which I heard you say once comes from the fact that as a twin, you operate with twin desires. And that ability to hold two competing realities in the palm of your hand, I want to understand where that comes from. You grow up in South Central. You're born in, in 1977, the fifth of six children. And your mother, Freddie Mae, leaves Downsville, Texas, to be a linguistics major at UCLA and created what you called a magical artistic garden. You said, if you looked at the house that I grew up in, my mother created this greenhouse that was plexiglass that surrounded the entire property full of trees and sculptures. That safe haven, did you feel like you were existing in two different worlds then, one that you lived in and one that she had created for you? That's a good question. There's the world that my mother created, which is the world that I was born into. I, I stand on the shoulders of a number of beautiful Black women who decided to create moments and openings for me and my twin brother and my sisters to, to be able to get out of the what was then a very dangerous and, and fraught uh, South Central Los Angeles. I remember my mom finding after-school programs who were like the only Black kids in an all-Jewish summer camp. There was um, something to be said about maybe not having all the resources, but having someone who would defend your passion for the arts in a, in a way that was really, that remains to me quite touching. My mom left Downsville, Texas to stop sharecropping, which was a surprise to me that people were even sharecropping in 1977, and joined the Marines. She spent much of her time in Okinawa, Japan, and it was due to the GI Bill that she was able to then go on to study at UCLA and USC, where she met my Nigerian father. So I represent this kind of strange bifurcation between an American story and an African story. But strangely, I grew up in a culinary sense and in a historical and cultural sense, being quite comfortable with uh, certain Japanese flavors mm -hmm. and stories. And coming back all these years to thinking about refiguring the landscape, I think it's really interesting to go into this Edo period and to think about openness and the difference between the Western conception of the landscape and, and something to be annexed or consumed, and then this depiction of a much more sort of atmospheric perspective, a way in which we think about death, ultimately, as time and space unfold in the picture plane. You'll never be this young again. The portrait becomes almost like a painting of uh, a bowl of fruit or a vase of flowers, this sort of fixed moment of something that you know very well will decay. That beautiful monologue you just gave, I think the language for that starts for you at the age of 11, when your mother takes you to LACMA, not that far from here, and you experience your first piece by Carrie James Marshall. When an 11-year-old Kehinde walks into the museum, what happens? Well, you'd have to realize that I had the fortune of being able to see a number of 
great museums in Los Angeles. You don't necessarily think of Southern California as being a great art mecca, but there's some amazing collections here. And I was blessed to be able to go and see them at a very young age. And this painting was arresting because of its sheer blackness. Carrie James Marshall created a type of arresting skin presence that was literally a spook, something that drew you out of your skin because it was the picture of skin itself. It was a designed to be a play upon the ways in which skin has been, dark skin has been depicted as something that was uh, menacing or frightening or impossibly dark or something that um, should be walked away from and not walked towards or into. And I was decidedly walking towards this painting because it, it looked like me. The, the, the uh, subject matter was the barbershop. It felt very familiar and, and relatable. The piece is called De Style from 1993. And it was the first time that I had seen modern dress in such an epic scale in museum space. I mean, it was, it was a revolution to me. And so all these years later, um, I still remember and, and pay a huge debt of gratitude to, to Kerry James for, for that work and for the work that he continues to do. Emboldened by his work, you begin these live drawing classes. You go to art school. You then go to Russia, as you mentioned, in a kind of Soviet study abroad program that I still don't understand how the hell that happened. This was uh, 1989. This was during Perestroika, the last year of the Soviet empire. And there was something called the Center for U.S. USSR Initiatives, which was uh, sponsored by the State Department. And it essentially was a sort of ping-pong politics situation in which we hoped that by the sheer act of cultural entropy, we would be able to penetrate the hearts of the young Soviet kids. Did you penetrate the hearts? <laughs> my, my young 12-year-old ass was just trying to <laughs> figure out what the hell was going on. We were in this decommissioned military uh, camp, and it was in the middle of the forest. It was 50 then Soviet kids and 50 American kids. And we would just simply go to art class every day. We'd go to language class and art class, and we'd swim in the rivers, and we'd pick mushrooms, and we would we were kids, you know, and it was, it was a, a, an amazing growth period, one in which I can't say technically there was much more growth, but in terms <laughs> of like the way that I related to the world and the way that I thought about myself in the world, it, it changed on that trip. And I imagine to see yourself outside of the world you had come of age in. Yeah, I mean, it expands you. It just gives you a sense that the hood that you grew up in is just not it. Mm. There's more out there. We're going to the Winter Palace, the Hermitage. We're looking at some of the greatest paintings known to the Western world. And at that age, trying to imagine perhaps my own story being told one day in the idiom of painting. It was a wonderful opportunity. You said that in that period, there may not have been a ton of artistic growth. Mm -hmm. But I think where you do start to grow is in high school. You come back to the U.S., you attend uh, the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. And it's there that you've experienced a, a teacher named Tim Asgar. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from him? Well, he was a mentor at uh, the NAACP AXO program, which was an after-school program that supported the arts. And he was a white guy who was painting black skin in a way that was very fascinating and, and materially mature. Fascinating almost seems like a polite word. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it was it was strange. I mean, it, it it made me wonder why he was painting 
Black folks so much and what the draw was. But then it also brings up an interesting quagmire because every time in art school, I decided to paint the black body, all of my teachers and classmates back then would ask me, why are you always painting black people? They never interrogated the fact that painting whiteness was the sort of normative state of affairs. Mm -hmm. And I think it was interesting because it was, it was a very different time in the culture and there was a, a lot of assumptions that were being made, assumptions that weren't being interrogated. Right, questions not being asked. Precisely, or questions not being asked of themselves. Questions being asked of me and, and why it is that I felt the appropriateness of black bodies for my work. But I happen to live in this body and so I'm talking about the body that I navigate the world with, the difference between the way it's being pictured historically and the way that it feels to taste it, to inhabit it, to be reminded daily of the dissonance between its representation and its actuality as the subject matter of my work. Mm. And I think it's, it's, it is interesting, though, to note that the learning of color as it relates to the Black body was learned uh, with an, a teacher who happened not to be Black. But all of my teachers happened not to be Black. Right. Not really an outlier. Not at all. I mean, the way in which we learn how to paint Black bodies in oil painting in a classical tradition is a completely new phenomenon, with the exception of very few helpmeets and servants and moors that you would see in paintings, oftentimes relegated to the back of the composition. Rarely do you see a, a very strong tradition of painting black skin or even knowing how to create underpaintings or glazing techniques or complementary tones. All of these things have to be arrived at in a kind of intuitive way, and I think it helps to inhabit that body. Mm. I think that helps not only in terms of oil painting, but in terms of photography, in terms of lighting for film. This is something that Black people are quite familiar with and the ways in which we sort of recognize how to make ourselves beautiful best whether it be from makeup artists or from what have you. When you do land in college and your classmates have these questions for you about why you're painting people of color, never to ask themselves why white is a, is a standard, you go to Yale for an MFA program, and it's there you began painting people from black neighborhoods in New Haven. What did you make of their opinions? Did you listen to that? The work that I began doing in Yale was as a direct result of being able to pull from the buffet court of intellectual arguments, conceptual histories. The desire was to synthesize some of the conceptual strengths and conceits of Yale with the desire to continue to make a powerful figurative work. Back then, it was seemed like an impossibility, not least of which is because you know the, the advent of like this rise in figurative paintings simply didn't exist. I walked out into the streets of New Haven with a desire to bring in the image of the people who were in that city. There's, it, it, it's a tale of two cities, New Haven. There's this privileged set who get to go beyond the gates and enter the sanctified kingdom of Yale. And then there's those folks who come from an underserved community, predominantly black. And I chose to live in, in that community. And when making those paintings and drawing those folks into my work, it became a, an interesting provocation for a lot of folks. I think a lot of people weren't used to seeing that happen. I don't think they knew how to synthesize that, how to, to really take it. We didn't really have a language about showing up, taking up space, representing the language of hip hop in, in the way that people dress. That stuff was radically new then. It's just not that long ago. It was the late 90s, early 2000s. 
It was 2001 uh, when I uh, finally came to New York after Yale. So I graduated in 2000. So it was about 20 years ago. You know, towards the end of your time there, you, you had uh, Carrie James Marshall do a studio visit, right? Mm-hmm. What did he make of what you were doing? Carrie James Marshall's visit at Yale was really powerful to me because he talked about the body in a very different manner. He talked about empathy. He talked about the ways in which empathy exists in a Rubens, the way that you can tell that he cares about his subjects, his sitters, the way that he softens the edge, the way he allows a type of fleshiness to communicate humanity in the work. He encouraged me to think about that, about the way that sharp edges sit upon uh, vulnerable skin. He encouraged me to think about that as a decision or as a choice, and that you can't be indifferent to mark making. He said, enough with the sharp edges. They're cold, they're clinical, and they say a lot about you. What do you think it said about you? Perhaps that I was um, trying too hard to create paintings that were cold and clinical and aping the language of the reductive conceptualist tropes. However it worked, something of what he said inspired you to move to New York and take this year-long residency at the Studio Museum under then Thelma Golden. That first piece that appears in Black Romantic, Conspicuous Fraud Number 1, Eminence. Where does that piece land with you now? Well, it really does seem to me to be the starting point of a set of interests that feel very pressured, even to to this day. There was an obsession with the way that color is social. I was looking at that color swatch, that seafoam green, lifting it directly from Martha Stewart's 1999 home collection, thinking about like acceptable taste, middle-class sensibilities, and aspirational senses of like the distance from blackness that existed in that aesthetic. And then, of course, forefronting this very black, present man with this bright orange tie. He has an afro that's oversized to the point in which it starts to take over the picture plane. There's almost this competition between the hair and and the sitter. Here, we're using the language of the Herculean, the idea that hair is at once fashion, but it's erotic. It's one that's a, a kind of protection from the elements, but a type of overgrown phallus in the work. It's about the performance of masculinity. It's about the consumption of the black male and the invention of black masculinity in many ways. Black masculinity in this society and the ways in which it's limited by the nature of chattel slavery and the ways in which it's an artifice. But there can be a joy uh, that can be had in those limitations. We'll be right back with artist Kehinde Wiley. Throughout those early 2000s, you really do start developing that process that has remained today, the, the street casting, the then photographing them. In that first week of, of working in Harlem, you're en route from 126th Street and Morningside, heading to the Studio Museum, when you spot a crinkled letter-sized sheet of paper blowing down the sidewalk. What was that? Well, it was a mugshot. It was, for some reason, a mugshot that was printed on paper. I'm assuming that it was in the possession of some officers and they just lost possession of it. 
but I found it and it was in the streets and it it was resonant to me because the guy looked so young and so vulnerable and so relatable. And, and there was some strange tells, like there were necklaces that seemed very specific to certain Yoruba traditions. There was a, a t-shirt that didn't quite fit the right way. There was a tilt to the neck. There was a, a very sympathetic presence that someone who's in the business of making portraits would be absolutely crazy not to pay attention to. And so it lit a flame. It made me, made me start thinking about the choices to position your body in a portrait and how those choices are oftentimes reduced for so many people. I mean, here we're literally looking at a mugshot in which the traditional mugshot is full frontal turn, side, click. The reduction and the um, eradication of his power in that, in that particular uh, image became a kind of metaphor or a call to arms, really, for me to begin a new type of storytelling in which choice, in which grace is uh, reinstated, Mm. Uh, to try to kind of, kind of allow that mugshot to become uh, the catalyst for a new type of erasure. Of that period, you described your work uh, in an oral history with the Smithsonian. You said it was informed by a very Marxist, use-value-driven investigation of painting as agent. These are high-priced luxury goods for wealthy consumers, which are designed to deliver certain communicative effects. What did you mean by Marxist use value? Well, I mean, if you look at the writings of Marx and Engels, there's this reduction of people, places, and things, uh, sadly, in the in late capitalism, in terms of their use and or exchange value. And the critique is that they are reduced oftentimes to their use and their exchange value without having a broader sense of value that lies outside of use and exchange? Is there a way in which you could look at people or nature or landscape or mm. anything in your world without having to reduce it to its use and exchange value? I think that's at the core, a real question that confronts the way that we live today. Are those questions you're still asking of your work? Do, do you think that still applies, that description? Of course. I mean, I think what we know to be true is that we're destroying our ecosystem daily because we reduce it to its use and exchange value. And we know that it's priceless. We know that people can be oftentimes reduced in those ways. And we know that we can oftentimes forget the priceless nature of the people who surround us, the grace and the divinity of the people who surround us. At its best, what my work tries to do is remind us of, of that essential truth. That's the sort of practical application. I'm wondering, you mentioned the power of posterity in, in art and this this living forever through the work. You said once, art is for us to deal with the existential fact of extinction. It is for us to dance in the face of doom and be able to create something that lives underneath the inevitable fact of our death. How do you grapple with that today? Through painting. Great literature, I suppose, is not afraid to look into the void. Great painting is not afraid to look into the void. The void and the anxiety surrounding the void is what gives life its meaning, what gives us the excitement around hurrying up and getting the good while the getting's good, because time is limited. You know, living forever is when, when you can sort of luxuriate. Mm. I think there's a, a, a kind of uh, excitement and joy to be found looking into the void. And I think that's one of the, the great things that good painting can do, 
it can enliven the senses and allow us to know what is there in front of us in, in moments when we feel as though perhaps life isn't worth it. Perhaps we've been handed a bad lot. Can you imagine how much resilience those generations of African-Americans who came before me, whose shoulders I stand upon, must have had to rely upon to keep on going and to know that there is something graceful and good simply about being alive, mm. even in the face of that much pain and suffering and the, to see your, your children taken away from you, your love extinguished, um, your, your, your body broken and mangled on a daily basis, and to be able to create labor songs, to be able to move the body in a way that, in, that reminds you of its beauty and its grace, even in the way that you step. Uh, your fingers or moan or move through space, finding like the, the smallest little cracks of joy and being able to say that this too is divine and to be able to survive and hold on long enough to see others grow into other newer places of freedom. I'm thinking now about the history you're alluding to and the historic nature of your presidential portrait of Barack Obama. When it was unveiled in 2018, you gave a very moving speech about the process of it, about working with him, your story. And uh, when the speech was done, you uh, receive applause from the audience. You uh, hug President Obama, uh, the First Lady. And uh, as you go back to your seat, right before you sit down, you stop yourself from sitting down and go back to the podium. And I thought, um, if you wouldn't mind, we could listen to that for a second. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. Your mom. Your mom. Hey. <laughs> I, you got it dead on. I was so uh, in this zone and talk about uh, uh, not recognizing the real source of the light. My mother, Freddie Mae Wiley, can you please stand? There is nothing I can say. This is really where it all starts. And um, we didn't have much, but she found a way to get paint and just the ability to, 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 oh, shut up and breathe. <laughs> the ability to, to, to be able to picture something bigger than that piece of South Central LA that we were living in. You saw it, you did it, thank you. I love that. It's good to be able to remind myself of what really matters sometimes. And it's also good to know where you come from and not to uh, lose track of who taught you what true north is. You know, we talk, I talk a lot about that interview with Carrie James in which she's talking about empathy and about how to properly approach the body. But I think it's being raised by women like that. My mom, her sisters, so many beautiful women in my life who've been great meters of what true grace is. This is really how you arrive at, at great storytelling and picture making. It's through empathy. It's through being able to look at someone else's story and see and to make it your own. 
those are lessons that are priceless. I love that line you have with her. This is where it all starts, that she had the ability to picture something bigger than a piece of where you came from. Yeah. She had the vision. Yeah, she's always been vast. She's always been a great storyteller of, of huge proportion. She said, I wouldn't even say that art is the greatest thing that Kehinde will accomplish before the Lord promotes him. I see him as a great entrepreneur. I'm curious about all this incredible work you're doing with BlackRock, how you're seeing this next chapter for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it really requires um, a different hat to go from spending your time in your studio all the time uh, to moving into constructing large spaces all over the place for artists to inhabit and to explore Africa and to think about the broader evolution of culture within West Africa. That's, it's, 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 it's a great opportunity, but, it's the, but boy, is it uh, a leap yeah. into something new. Black Rock Senegal is the project that I began about five years ago, just before COVID. And it's an artist and residency program based on the Studio uh, Museum in Harlem's art residency program, exactly three artists at a time. My program invites artists from all over the world, regardless of race, nationality, to work and live in, in Africa, to be able to imagine themselves working there, creating new friends, um, and hopefully over the years, creating a whole group of people who've got something in common. This uh, whole Africa and the 21st century story is, is a really interesting, unknown, and exciting quantity. I really enjoy being there. I've been going there for the last 20-odd years and seeing Africa change. There is no real singularity called Africa. The, the real question is, which Africa? You know, you, you'll go from the arid north to the tropical belts in, this, in the core around Nigeria, where my father's people come from. You'll find uh, in the big cities, fashion taking off and music taking off and young people really contributing to a new sense of what Africa is. And it's a very exciting time to be there right now. You said with this venture, you wanted to create a place where the world comes to discover who they are. Yeah, because I mean, so much of what we've received about Africa is shot through the rubric of disease, war, uh, corruption. Let's not uh, create any illusions. Africa has its problems, but I think it's, uh, there's an opportunity here to also check ourselves on a lot of the... Um, judgments that were quickly arrived at without having any personal experience in that space. And we can also discover not only who Africa is, but who we happen to be in relationship with the truth. And the truth is that Africa is a work in progress, that she's constantly unfolding and opportuning a set of uh, mirrors in which we can see ourselves, but we can also reflect uh, a new sense of self out there into the world. Well, I'm excited to see where that goes in the future. Since we're here talking around opening night, I want to go to how this all comes to be, these incredible pieces. The interaction with the subjects, as I understand it, comes in three parts. The first is on the street. Someone eventually says yes after you do all you can to get them to say yes. The second is the day of the photo shoot. And the third is, is a night like tonight where they come for the, the opening festivities. You said once, you have the studio, get them limousines, and have them show up at the opening as though they were the stars of the show, which they are. 
But in the end, it goes back to this idea of going from the absolute mundane act of walking down the street, trying to get to work, to these heightened moments of being in an artist's studio and being photographed and going through art history books and then going to that big opening night. But I wonder if this process of street casting and, and the photo shoot and the opening night, if its function is two-pronged. One, it clearly makes the subjects feel special and alive and makes them feel like they matter. But I want to know, after all the work you've made at age 45, what it does to you to have that process. Are, are you delivered back, perhaps through their excitement? Are you delivered back to the beginning, reminded of why you fell in love with this medium in the first place? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good way of thinking about it. There is a kind of redemption that happens in every painting. There's a sense of sadness that happens at the completion of every painting. It's the invitation for something new and an opportunity to discover more. You learn from every painting, you make new mistakes, and from those mistakes you happen upon new techniques and new possibilities of mark making. You meet new people, you explore different ways of painting skin. But I think ultimately you get closer to yourself. I don't ever paint myself, but I'm slowly getting closer to myself because it's always me looking, it's always me pointing out. It's not really about any of those people in the painting. So much of it is about this kind of circularity of outward pointing in order to arrive at the inside. And the empathy part is just the catalyst, but ultimately it becomes this completely self-serving act of trying to find yourself, trying to evolve, trying to allow other people to become the source of your evolution. And hopefully it becomes these dances between what makes your life beautiful and well-lived. Uh, and hopefully along the way, you can lay a trace of something beautiful for someone else. Well, I thank you for uh, the ongoing dance you've done for 25 years, the dance in this conversation and uh, everything in between. Good luck tonight. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Pleasure is mine. That's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. I want to give a special thanks today to Sarah Miller, Hannah Gottlieb Graham, Mary Scarbeck, Georgia Harrell, and of course, Kehinde Wiley. You can see his new exhibition, Colorful Realm, at the Roberts Projects in Los Angeles, California, now through April 8th. To learn more about Kehinde's work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Hank Willis-Thomas, Marina Abramovich, Toyin Oji Odatola, Antoine Sargent, Tyler Mitchell, and Joel Meyerwitz. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support us by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. 
As always, this show would not be possible without our team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so long.